Greetings on this good day that the Lord has made. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, and this is the Bread of Life. Our program is presented by the International Disciple-Making Ministry Church Partnership Evangelism. I encourage you to learn more about the amazing work we're doing all around the world. You can go to traincpe.org, or you can follow all the links at our webpage, breadoflifeboise.org. Let me read to you the first two verses of the second epistle of John. To the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. If you pause and consider these words of John, you'll see that truth is expressed by love. And where you don't find love, you will not find truth. Well, there's kind of a long-standing agreement as to who the letter of 2 John is written to. This goes all the way back to the early church fathers. Some of the early church fathers actually thought that John was addressing a woman by the name of Electa. Now, part of the problem with that is at the very end of the letter, she has a sister named Electa too. It's very unlikely that you would name two daughters Electa, right? And also there's another problem with it, and that is, although it seems to be addressing a woman named Electa, that John keeps forgetting himself and speaking to her with pronouns that are plural. And so what we should understand, and this is the other view that took place, was that John is actually addressing a specific local church and the members of that local church, and that's why he uses the pronouns he uses. He is doing it stylistically, so he addresses the church like it's a mother and its members like children. So that's a good thing to start out with and understand. And then we have this word in here, love, in our text. What John says is that he loves the church, and in verse 4, he's going to commend to them this exercise of love as well. And he actually says not only does he love this church, but everybody who is practicing or living in the truth loves this little church as well. And the word love there, we know it, we've heard it before, it's the word agape. It's a Greek word expressing a unique kind of love, but it's not sentimental love. It's not affectionate love. There's a different word for that, for the kind of a sentimental, affectionate love. And it's not passionate love and a love that's inflamed and filled with passion. There's another Greek word for that as well. Agape love is uniquely within the context of the New Testament. It's the love that is informed by God itself. It's the love that has all of the particular nature of it somehow typed into our very existence by God so that when we express it, it's God-produced. It's God working through us. Really, what this God-produced agape love is, if we were to give a definition for it, it looks like this. It's the persistent and unyielding good will that we express towards another person. It's the persistent and unyielding good will that we express towards another person. In other words, you can't turn it off because it's not being generated by you. It's being generated by God. It's a reflection of God's own nature. The psalmist loves to say over and over again that God is good, and basically what he's saying is that God has a persistent, unyielding pursuit to do good and to bring advantage and goodwill to all. And that's the kind of love that God puts in our heart in the hearts of his people, and what is particularly being expressed towards the members of the church, towards one another, this love that, like God, seeks the highest good of others. That's love. Now, the question we have to ask when we look at this passage is, how is this kind of love achieved in the church? What is it that fosters a loving fellowship? What has to take place so that that kind of love comes to a place and to a people 
where we are all dedicated to this idea that the great ruling principle in our relationships is to act in love, this persistent goodwill towards one another, to act for the benefit and to act out of a kind regard for the other person. The Lord Jesus actually says that this is the primary apologetic of the church. When the world looks on and they want to come to understand whether we stand in what is good and right and true, the primary and leading argument Jesus says that is put forward is our love for one another. In John chapter 13, verse 35, by the way, if you've not been to church a lot and you've always had the stereotype that churches always talk about Jesus and love, well, we're going to really help reinforce the stereotype this morning because of the passage before us. The Lord Jesus says in John chapter 13, verse 35, that the world is going to identify his disciples because of their love for one another. That would be the hallmark of our reputation in the world. I think we could pray, God, would that that were true. God, would that this would be the leading edge of the body of Christ is not our precise logic, not the cosmological or ontological or teleological argument for why we believe what we believe, that there's a God who exists, but the primary argument that we'd set before individuals that would first begin to give us a place and a foothold to speak to them of the things that we know is the leading edge of our love for one another. Now John writes to an individual church, and he tells this individual church that he loves them, but he also says something very interesting. He says that not only does he love them, but every believer loves them as well. Basically says everyone who is in good standing in God's truth and yielded to it loves them. And what John is saying is that it is right to love a church. It's right to do that. And also I think John is saying it is right to love the church. We love a church and we love their church. I think right there is kind of an important concept. I think John is using this occasion to speak to the local church, but in a sense for a moment, I think John bridges outside even the local church and he's actually for a moment seeing in it the greatness and the goodness of the universal church. (laughs) That church that's gathering of believers in every place, in every locality, in this country and in other countries and around this world and even those who have gone before us that are right now gathered before the throne. And John is basically saying, I love the church. I love them in the truth. And all those who are walking in the truth love the church as well. I love the church. One person said to me in precisely this way, but I've actually heard this statement from other individuals to this effect. I love Jesus. I just can't stand the church. I love Jesus, but it's a church I can't stand. John is telling us that this is impossible. It's not possible. In fact, John is not simply confessing a love for the idea of the church or a love for the church in its purest potential. No, he actually says he loves this elect woman, this little local church, but he also says he loves her children. He loves the members of that church. Not only that, if you look at the passage, you find out that not all the members of the church are doing well. He says, I rejoice to hear that some of your children are walking in truth and love. What's that mean? Some of them aren't. But before he decides who is and who isn't, he says, I love all your children. I love the church. I love the concept of the church universal. I love this local church. I love all the children in your church. I love all the members of your church. Not only I do this, but anyone who is walking in the truth, who is walking in a way that is an expression of the righteous influence of God's saving power upon their lives, 
will find this impulse within them, this agape flow, this typing in of God's own instinct towards his people and towards his body, this goodwill. It is a sign of the individual's proper relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, whether they love the body of Christ, whether they love the church. Now, I think all of us would acknowledge that it's important that we love one another. If not, please come and explain it to me. I think we'd all acknowledge that's a good thing and that's a right thing. But we might not all agree at what it is that should cause or what will be the influence that will help us to grow and expand in our love for one another. We might not agree what should be at the root of this growing, developing love. For some, they would say what we really need is tolerance. For others, what we really need is we need to kind of unite together in some kind of social action, some strategy to benefit our society. Others would say what we really need is we need more fellowship opportunities. And, you know, we just need to play Pictionary together more often or to do things where we just enjoy one another. Some would say what we really need is we need some more shared spiritual experiences. We need more singing together and praying together and praising together and crying together and being broken together and bonding. We need more of those kinds of deep bonding experiences. I think if you went through and considered that, you'd see that some have more merit than others, but all of them have some level of merit. All of it, to some extent, may be true and good, but what John tells us in this passage is, what is it that needs to be at the heart of a true expression of agape love in the church? John says that that love is the evidence of truth being expressed among us and within us. And when John says that he's not advocating open and honest relationships, that's not what he's talking about. That's not the truth he's talking about. He's talking about a body of information that should be embraced by us all. And this body of information he calls truth that informs the way we live together and it actually produces in us love. John basically says we're to love in the truth we're to love because of the truth or for the sake of the truth. And we're to love by the means of the truth. Those three things. In the truth, because of the truth, by the means of the truth. And by the way, I think if you look at this, we need to understand this truth is, at the very minimum, certain doctrines or dogmas. Certain kind of constructed understandings of what are the primary teachings of those who are faithful to the word and teaching of Jesus Christ. It's teaching, it's instruction, and it, it doesn't just stop there. It's teaching and instruction, ultimately, that is wrapped up and comes to its fullness in a person, in a person and his work, in Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, I am the truth. And Jesus then says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I will set you free. And it's clear that this truth Although when we look at this, even here, we have to understand it as the expressions of absolute propositions of what is good and right and true. In other words, absolute statements of what God would have us know and understand. That is, these are the doctrines of Christ. These are the teachings of Christ. They represent a body of information that God says are absolute and that our lives are to be conformed to. That's why the Lord Jesus, when he taught, would say things like, truly, truly, I say unto you. That's the reason why when he sent his disciples off, he said, I want you to make disciples in all nations, and I want you to teach them all the things that I've commanded you. It is this information, this body of absolute information that is truth 
that I'm going to unite my community around. But ultimately, it's not just the information. It's information that we learn united in the person and in a relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment. The very inspiration for all those truths. So he doesn't just say, go and teach them everything I've commanded you. That would just make you a bunch of theologians. First, he says, immersing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You bring people to have their lives immersed in me. Centrally located in me, the truth. And then from that, you teach them truth. You explain to them truth. You teach them my doctrines. So ultimately, yes, there are absolute and authoritative propositions. But they rest in an absolute and authoritative person. It's that truth, truths taught, united in the person of Jesus Christ, that produces love. That said, I think you'll see that the remedy for a loveless church is not just tolerance. In fact, if we look at the letter that John is writing, he's actually warning the church against allowing certain individuals into their community because he says they're false teachers. He's telling them that they cannot tolerate certain individuals from coming in who add to the central doctrines and teachings of the Christian faith or deny the reality of Jesus Christ being the Savior God come in the flesh. They're not to tolerate such individuals and such teaching. They're not even to welcome that person into their house and their place. Paul actually adds some more instruction to the church in this very way. He not only teaches us that we're not to tolerate those who have false teaching, but he also says that we're not to tolerate individuals who claim faith in Jesus Christ, but follow a consistent pattern of false living. You've been listening to The Bread of Life. Join us again tomorrow at the same station. For a copy of this broadcast, go to breadoflifeboise.org and follow the links. Until the next time, may the Lord bless you.